0: On the roundtable today we're discussing the future of the great barrier reef and the people who live near it in an era of climate change and decarbonisation at the southern end of the great barrier reef a natural wonder of the world that's of global heritage significance and hypersensitive to climate change butts up against gladstone which is the industrial hub of queensland the reef is also the sea country home of more than 70 traditional owner groups Different parts of the local community depend for their livelihood almost entirely on the reef industry or the energy industry. The challenges facing the Gladstone community are a stark microcosm of issues that the whole nation and indeed the entire planet have to address. Can decarbonisation be done quick enough to save the reef from destruction without destroying local communities and businesses along the way? and it's a great pleasure to welcome firstly councillor Khan Goodluck who's the deputy mayor of Gladstone Regional Council welcome Khan good day thanks it's a pleasure uh, we're also joined by Jacqueline McCosker who's an Australian Conservation Foundation community campaigner welcome Jacqueline thank you Gillian. And rounding off the round table today, we welcome Marwa Johnson, who's a co-director of Youth Verdict, a First Nations-led organisation of young people using legal avenues to fight for climate justice. Welcome, Marwa.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: It's a pleasure. I'd like to start the conversation today by hearing a little from each of you about your life story, even your, your broader family's story, and how it relates to both Gladstone and the great Barrier Reef. Uh, Could you start us off, Khan? Good luck, please.
2: Yeah, uh, well, I'm the Deputy Mayor of the Gladstone Regional Council. I uh, I grew up in a small country town called Kilkeven, which is just west of Gympie. And uh, I uh, moved to the Gold Coast after school, got an apprenticeship as a maker, and it was my trade that sort of brought me to Gladstone. So I've been here for 11 years. Uh, I've got three young children, and I, I love the diversity in our region. From the most northern surf beach in Agnes Water Um, and an hour and a half down the road you could be at the Calliope Rodeo and obviously you know the Great Barrier Reef right on our doorsteps I think Gladstone boasts the highest boat ownership per capita in the country Uh, so every second household's got a boat up here and and you know myself and my family and and all my friends I know many people that really love the fishing uh, and we we can thank the Great Barrier Reef for that. Um, So it's part of the culture in our communities. Um, You know, we love the water, the foreshores, the fishing and all the diversity that we have here in our region. So it's critically important that we look after it. And I think people have that connection to the reef. And and I talk to people that have seen changes there uh, over many years. And, um, you know, it's it's an important part of our community and people are very passionate about um,
0: protecting it and keeping it safe. Thanks very much, Khan. Jacqueline McCosker, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, and I'm sure part of that story will be how you came to be a community campaigner for the Australian Conservation Foundation in Gladstone.
3: Yeah, sure. So I was born at the Gladstone Hospital, so I'm a Gladstone born and raised local, so I can back up a lot of what Khan just said. I grew up on the ocean, on the boat, as many weekends as we could be out trying to spot dolphins, sea turtles, the the lone dugong I've seen, which I still tell people to this day, and it's been about 20 years, um, and always that really strong connection to beach and reef and really considering that a core part of our lifestyle and identity. But like a lot of people, we live in Gladstone because it's where the heavy industry is, and today I am in an industry household. Um, We are reliant on being close to these sorts of industries for income. Um, to keep a roof over our heads. So for me, it was a kind of interesting dichotomy um, as someone interested in climate and who started to see threats to wildlife, such as turtles and dolphins, to kind of have the finger being pointed at our lifeblood, at sort of the core of this community, what was keeping us all Mm. afloat. So what ACF have decided to do is actually hire a local to sort of help us circumnavigate these the sticky aspects of climate conversations and actually help people engage in the, the conversation, the debate for the first time and give resources to people within the fossil fuel region to actually figure out what they want for their future. Due to negative stereotypes of people that live in fossil fuel regions, we find uh, people that work in these sorts of jobs are typically excluded from the conversation and we're just trying to do it differently and show people that we're just regular people that love nature and care about the climate just like you. We just happen to have a different job.
0: Thanks very much, Jacqueline, and we'll talk a little bit about what the sort of state of opinion is in the broader community, but just before we move on to Marwa, um, how is it in your personal family? Uh, what are the conversations like about these issues around the dinner table? Is there you know, significant division of opinion within the family?
3: Of course, there's division of opinion. Uh, There's always different ways people think about the problem, different ways they approach the problem, different frames of thinking, but fundamentally, when you present sort of the facts and you lay out like, here's how climate's trending, here's what the global market's doing, here are the economic opportunities, overarchingly, everyone I speak to does tend to agree a lot more than people would probably believe.
0: Mm. That's really interesting. Thanks very much, Jacqueline. Marawa Johnson, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your story?
1: Yes, thank you. And just also like to say, lovely to hear the stories as well as my co guests as well. So born in Roma, my traditional country on my mother's side is also out that way and My mother was actually uh, the trigger applicant in a federal court judgment, the QGC versus Blackraves judgment that I think really was uh, monumental in terms of native title, rights and interests for First Nations people in Queensland and federally as well as it is a federal act. But also I grew up uh, in central Queensland and North Queensland for the most part, though, further to the north, so around towns, big industry there as well but also um, lived throughout the Bowen Basin and, and saw coal mines all around me on my father's 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 country. And so it was through the Jagalingu connections that I have to country out at Claremont uh, that my people actually were proposed the uh, Adani Carmichael coal mine uh, on my father's side. And for six years, very staunchly resisted that project in terms of... What it would do to climate but also what it did to our traditional rights where the legal system just wasn't there to allow us to exercise our right to say no to a project that would potentially destroy our country beyond repair and so as a young person part of my drive in sort of wanting to do work on climate change but also ensuring that first nations communities are consulted but also leading the way in terms of climate Mm -hmm. solutions Uh, is because of the destruction of country that I saw um, throughout my childhood. But as a young person now with having to face climate change for decades to come, I think that it's really important that people from communities that have long been reliant on the mining industry are really at the forefront of the solution. That's why I joined Youth verdict as well. Uh, we currently have a human rights court case against Clive Palmer's proposed Waratah coal mine in central Queensland, arguing that the First Nations people, and as you mentioned before, Julian, over 70 different First Nations groups have deep connections to the reef. And so, what essentially we're arguing before the land court is that the climate impacts that come with Uh, new coal mines really is going to limit the human rights of First Nations people, but also all Queenslanders.
0: Thanks very much, Marwa. I wonder if we could move on now to setting the stage in terms of the state of the reef and the the dangers that it faces. I'll I'll ask you about that, Jacqueline, and then Khan, perhaps you could give us a snapshot of the state of, uh, you know, the heavy industry economy in Gladstone.
3: Yes. So off the back of what Mara was just saying. Obviously, we're coming out of a bit of a fight against a coal mine, which I think brought the state of the reef back into the national discourse again, which it's never too late to do that. Um, and we really found ourselves um, a lot of community pressure, really advocating for the federal government to recognise the really stark decline. Um, of course, we've seen repeated mass bleaching events. We've seen it happening during a La Nina. And ironically, the leading cause of coral bleaching is actually the increase of global temperatures, which made this mine, which was going to be extracting up to 18 million tonnes of coal per year and pretty untenable and not very popular amongst the people. And it's been a very interesting sort of dichotomy looking at the, the difference between industry and coral reef health as people have been trying to grapple around how to combine those two things that have never typically really been discussed together and I think the court case that we've just heard about is a really great way that we've been um, almost repositioning health of the reef, health of the natural environment, our interconnectedness with that natural environment. It's really interesting to see that re-enter the zeitgeist I suppose because what we're looking at is potential extinction quite soon.
0: So the, the zeitgeist is changing Jacqueline says. Khan is that zeitgeist change extending to the operators of heavy industry in Gladstone?
2: Yeah, look, I think, you know, Gladstone, our region is a the industrial capital of the nation. And by virtue of that, it makes us the carbon capital of the nation. We've got uh, lots of carbon intensive industries here. Uh, we've got Rio Tinto with their Queensland Illumina two alumina refineries and an aluminium smelter. Uh, We've got the LNG facilities on Curtis Island. We've got Cement Australia and Orica and and coal exports and, and you name it, we've got it. We are a manufacturing heartland. Manufacturing here through those carbon intensive industries is the number one economic pillar in our region. So we make things here in Gladstone. And I think if you look at Rio Tinto, their three primary production facilities, the two alumina refineries and that aluminium smelter, uh, Rio Tinto in 2020 announced their policy to be uh, net zero operating by 2050. So we now have 28 years. We've got a defined timeline uh, in order to get our predominant industry sector you know to decarbonize and be operating at that net zero emissions level and i think that sort of changed the conversation a little bit it's no longer about just about the science and and the environment it's actually about the economy and and jobs and making sure that we've still got these jobs in our region in a post 2050 world rio tinto alone would employ probably somewhere around six or eight thousand people in our region uh, both directly through their production sites and also indirectly through local suppliers local contractors that sort of thing. So we can't afford to wake up in, you know, January of of 2050 and have the announcement that Rio Tinto is closing down their their Gladstone operations. And the good thing about Rio in particular, you know, they've taken an investment approach. They're looking at investing in their processes to decarbonise, you know, to improve their technologies. Uh, But we can't rely on Rio Tinto to do all the heavy lifting. I, I strongly believe that it's down to all levels of government, but in particular, state and federal Governments to make sure we've got the policy framework that drives those successful outcomes. Uh, you know, when we when we talk about climate change and renewable energies and coal, we all I find that the carbon-intensive industries in that manufacturing sector often get lost in the conversation. Uh, we always talk about the coal. Mines and the coal-fired power stations, but we don't necessarily talk about those thousands of employees in that manufacturing sector. That you know their jobs rely now on uh, making sure that we are successful in decarbonising these industries and, and that we can get that renewable energy into the grid, so that we don't have to rely on on coal-fired power generation. We will have coal-fired power generation for you know a period of time, but we we need to make sure that we're driving the right outcomes in in 20, 30 and 50 years time. So it's only natural that there's gonna be some concerns and some anxiety around, you know, what does the future look like? But in the conversations that I have with people, you know, and there is a a broad diversity of views, but I think people are are generally accepting of the fact that change is coming. Uh, We need to change the way that we do things and we we need to do things smarter. And uh, I think that's part of the reason that conversations like this are, are really important.
0: Jacqueline McCoskey, do you agree that there has been some genuine engagement from the business community or as a community campaigner, are you sceptical of the changes that have been made by the the top end of town?
3: Look, I I see the changes as already underway. I mean, I do personally view that this transition in Gladstone is inevitable. Obviously, non-renewable energy has a use-by date and it's too expensive to keep going the way we're going. Um, But really what's at stake here just is the speed and fairness Of the transition we are seeing our heavy industry the big corporations make these commitments and that is been incredible and it's especially been very useful in helping the community understand that this thing is real and that this actually will impact their day-to-day life Um, but what we want to see is in that engagement is a community-centered transition we want to see a back and forth we want to see a discussion and we want to see this period of change reconsider the way we structure a Local economy and right some long standing wrongs addressing inequity as we go. So, while reimagining our energy system and how we're going to fuel or power a local industry, we're also talking about things like where we work, how we work, who gets the work, who benefits from the work we're doing.
0: Myra Johnson, what's your perspective on those factors that Jacqueline just identified? The speed and the fairness of the transition? Do you think what's happening is speedy enough? And and, and what would be the the right balance in terms of fairness?
1: Yes, this question of fairness, I think that for a lot of people, um, especially in regional communities, It's really just centred about the communities that are required to transition. But what we don't talk about enough is that there are already communities that are being washed into the sea. We're not just talking about Pacific Islands that a lot of people have never heard the names of. We're talking about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities that are already losing aspects of their culture right now. There are low-lying atoll islands in the Torres Strait that actually just their whole entire future it's not about what their economy is going to be it's about whether they're going to have homes and i think that this is part of the conversation that also gets left out as well when we're talking about the importance of a just transition yes it has to happen and it, it you know it needs to be done in a collaborative way where everyone feels like their needs are being met but really there is a priority here because what we're creating is climate change refugees right here in Queensland right now. I learned about climate change on you know affecting Saibai Island in the Torres Strait in 2008 so this has been going on for a long time. What we do at Youth Verdict is we focus on communities that are directly impacted or uh, directly reliant on I guess, uh, industry, uh, high carbon industries and, you know, extractive mining, but also we need to be talking about the communities that aren't thought about when when we're having this discussion about a transition, because 2050 is really so far off. And to be quite honest, a lot of these communities and islands in the Torres Strait that are already facing rising sea levels they just might not be there then and so we've got to also factor in the fact that we are destroying the homes destroying the cultural identity of other mm. queenslanders of fellow queenslanders because of this constant pushing off the deadline and pushing back the dates for when we can have a real talk about the action that needs to be taken immediately
0: thanks marwa on the roundtable we are discussing the future of the Great Barrier Reef and the people who live near it in an era of climate change and decarbonisation with Murrowad Johnson, co director of Youth Verdict, Councillor Khan Goodluck, deputy mayor of Gladstone Regional Council, and Jacqueline McCosker, an Australian Conservation Foundation community campaigner. Khan Goodluck, we heard from Murrowad there a sense that some communities aren't having their voices heard enough in the conversation about transition. What's your response to what you've heard from Marwa?
2: Oh, look, I guess I can only speak from a Gladstone uh, region perspective, and and I I fully appreciate Marwa's points that she's made. You know, there are people that are being uh, directly impacted and affected right now as we speak. And, you know, the Gladstone Regional Council recently undertook some transition economy workshops across our region. We spoke to First Nations uh, traditional owner groups. Uh, we spoke to workers in, uh, you know, these carbon intensive industries. We spoke to business groups and businesses, business leaders. We spoke to a whole range of, of different sectors within our community to try and have these conversations. And, and absolutely, I agree. It's about trying to plan to make sure that we can share the benefits more broadly across communities so that we have less winners and losers. And and our community here in the Gladstone region is no stranger to Boom and bust cycles that come with development of new industries, and 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 when lots of investments being pumped into a community, we've we've seen uh, direct impacts here as well with with housing, where we see you know housing prices just skyrocket, and you know single mums or pensioners or, or seniors can't afford to live in their own homes anymore. They've got to uh, They're forced to move out. You know, you lose your grandparents. You lose part of the social fabric of society. Um, people lose their grandparents that can look after the kids. You lose the volunteers out of your Rotary Clubs and your Lions Clubs and your Country Women's Associations. Uh, so, you know, there's all these impacts as well. And and even around the distribution of wealth, you know, how can we better plan for uh, to service our communities in health and education and and, uh, social housing, all of these impacts. So we've been having those discussions locally here. I'm sure that there's many discussions happening right across the state of Queensland and and the world, I guess. I think we're on on the cusp of a a new time where we are gonna see, uh, and we we are seeing it right now, particularly here in our region, we've got emerging industries and emerging technologies coming through uh, in the hydrogen space and biofuels. We're potentially gonna see a lot of investment And we need to make sure that, you know, we start to do that planning work now so that we can address those issues before they fall in our laps and not just leave the communities to deal with the impacts as we have done so, so many times in the past, because then we're just going to end up in that same situation where we've got winners and losers.
0: Jacqueline Makoska, Khan mentioned the role for, for government, local government, presumably other levels as well in terms of assisting the community with these transitions. What, from your perspective, does the community need from government to manage these issues?
3: Oh, great question. Look, largely, I try not to be too prescriptive answering this question because I'm not pushing any one policy until the community have a chance to decide that amongst ourselves, but I can tell you what I'm already hearing is that impacted communities don't wanna, they won't tolerate decisions made about their lives without the input any longer. And I'm sure we can apply this to all impacted communities simply because no one else can understand our needs like we do. And what people are saying, the conversation that's happening, is we want to see a funded plan for exactly how we're going to meet Australia's climate commitments without exacerbating economic inequality, widening any class divides, leaving anyone behind. What this will probably look like, as the national conversation that we're having now, is a system of regional transition authorities orchestrated by a federal body. And what we want to see is regional branches of that that can actually be rooted, community-centered, community-based And let people have those conversations, express their needs and interests, and have some kind of self-determination over their own future. And exactly what that is going to look like is going to be different everywhere, um, as Gladstone is not the only region that's grappling with this transition.
0: Does that sound like a, a model that looks good to you, Khan? Good luck. Regional transitional authorities administered by the Commonwealth, but different in structure from region to region?
2: Yeah, I definitely think that's something that we're advocating for from a Gladstone Regional Council perspective. We're doing some work in this space because, you know, we take the approach that we need to be the smartest people in the room when we're talking uh, and advocating to, you know, state and federal governments and even to, you know, business leaders um, and industry groups around what our risks are, both to our economy and to our community, and also what our opportunities are and, and how we can best capitalize on those opportunities, but we only know from our own region and the data that we have and and the issues that we see. So we we really need that more overarching guidance from, you know, as I said, state and or federal governments who can look more broadly across the nation and hopefully provide that guidance and that overarching framework, which can really align the initiatives and and the proposals that every individual region is is doing uh, so that we know we're all you know on the right track
0: and murrow johnson even if all that was to happen is your view that in the end there's still going to be the need for exactly what youth verdict has been focused on which is actual sort of conflict-based legal challenges to the plans of some businesses in order to advance what you think is important in terms of climate justice
1: yes thank you for the question so what we don't talk about i think enough is that there's also my experience of heavy industry and pastoral uh industry as well on my traditional country where i grew up is really also a a quite a heavy experience of racism as well and so Yes. Well, it's great to be having, you know, as many stakeholder group and different sector meetings as you can and taking the leadership like, um, I guess, the Gladstone Regional Council is doing and really looking at developing a plan for their local economy. That's great. But really, it comes down to what the law is and what can be done and actually pushing state and federal governments to do better, not just asking them to, but actually making, I guess, a new legal standard and creating that. And that's why we've decided to take legal action as well. It's not the only solution, but it is one in terms of creating new precedent in in how climate change is considered in the decision making and approval process for new coal mines. But in terms of my reference to racism earlier is that First Nations communities have always been considered last. I think that things have started to change in the last few years and that's great. But really the reality is that our communities are designated as, you know, collateral damage, they're throwaway communities. And so I just think that legal action is important. You know, Terry Nullius would still exist if Mabo Number 2 didn't happen at, at a high court level. And we actually need to be forcing and pushing state and federal governments to create a new standard as well.
0: Thanks very much, Marwa. It's been a really engaging conversation and I must say really encouraging to hear that uh, from a range of different perspectives, there are still constructive conversations being had. We've only got a short time left on the roundtable, so I might just do one more uh, whip around of the roundtable to get a final comment from each of you, starting with, uh, with you, uh, Deputy Mayor Khan. Good luck.
2: Yeah, I think uh, the one point that I guess I focus on, you know, our community is going to transition one way or another. The amount of success that we have through that transition process, the amount of people that we can bring on the journey and hopefully mitigate you know some of the impacts to our community, and hopefully, like I said, try and reduce some of that winners and losers, you know, mantra. Uh, that, that's what we're sort of focused on, uh, and I think that's being more broadly accepted in communities like the Gladstone region. Uh, we understand that change is, is upon us, and uh, communities have to adapt to that change and so you know my focus is on making sure that we've still got a livable region here in decades to come and obviously that obviously that we've still got the great barrier reef and and, and a wonderful environment
0: thanks very much to you councillor khan good luck deputy mayor of gladstone regional council a final comment from you jacqueline Macoska
3: yeah so I, th- I think what i'd like to say is what we're trying to do here in gladstone is really destigmatize the climate conversation and the climate so-called debate and we're really trying to make a case show people that transition is good for everyone it's obviously going to be fantastic for survival of all people on earth <laughs> but even in the meantime in the short term what we're talking about is positive change positive economic change that can address inequalities and I, I guess I'd just like to invite people to rethink the way they speak to and about people that work in fossil fuel jobs, live in fossil fuel regions, and maybe we can try to lessen this divide between the people we think that are causing climate change and the people that are being impacted by climate damage.
0: Thanks very much. Jacqueline McCosker, Australian Conservation Foundation Community Campaigner. And we've really uh, only got about 30 seconds left, Marwa Johnson, but if we could get a final comment from you as well, that would be
1: great. Thank you very much. I think just in terms of youth verdict and our approach to the issue of justice for First Nations communities and the inevitable transition into developing solutions as well towards climate change, is that First Nations law is the first environmental law here. And so when we're developing environmental law or new legislation, especially with the Queensland Human Rights Act coming into effect in the last few years, is that Justice for First Nations people is justice for everybody. And mm. so the more that we invest in First Nations people and communities, the more that we invest in addressing historical and current injustice, but also look at a different worldview on how to connect with this landscape and really looking at alternative ways that we can build new and exciting economies in Queensland, in regional Queensland as well. But don't depend on someone else's loss for someone else's gain. So thank you very much.
0: Thanks very much, Marwa Johnson. Marwa is the co-director of Youth Verdict. Thanks again to all our guests on the Roundtable and a special thanks to the producer of the Roundtable this week, Dr Claudia Benham, who's an ARC DECRA Fellow at the University of Queensland. Claudia's work examines how communities in the tropics are affected by environmental change and she's just completed a residency program here at the ABC. So thanks very much to Claudia and to producers Chris Bullock, Joanne Crothers... Georgia Power and sound engineer Roy Huberman. I'm Julian Morrow. Thanks very much for listening. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.